Welcome. Glad to have you here today. We're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 17 in a series we called Clarity. You know, as uh, we make this glass clear, I pray that I'll also be able to clear some things up for you. It's been a good series. Have you enjoyed it so far? I have. And I continue to be so impressed with Pastor Dion when he brings a message. Man. You know, we are so blessed to have him as a teacher here as well. My name is Steve Howard. We're going to be talking about uh, clarity today. The third part, we started talking about the mission, you know, and how this isn't something we decide. It's a God-given intention that God has given to Christian people and to Christian churches. Then last week we talked about how the mission doesn't change, but the delivery changes because certainly the culture changes. And Dion did a good job about talking about the difference between the core and fluff things that can be compromised, things that can be adjusted so that we would fulfill that scripture that says, let's never make it hard for Gentiles to come to believe in Jesus. You know, we're not, we're not teaching our culture, we're not teaching our customs, we're teaching the Savior. I thought he did a great job. Today we're talking about what we do best together, and I pray that you're blessed by that. It's interesting when we talk about this relational intention and the relational creation of God for Christian people to come together, and just for people in general to live in relationship, we're being taught by a man who was single, you know, by the Apostle Paul. You know, he never married. And yet that doesn't mean uh, that you can't talk or understand the importance of relationships. It's not about being married. It's not about being old. It's not about being young. It's not about being widowed. You know, there is no preferred way to live except that we would always live in relationships. Paul actually was from Tarsus, which was a southern city along the coast of Turkey, on the southern edge of Turkey. He wasn't even born in the Holy Land. And so he was uh, raised by a Jewish family that had already been dispersed to a different part of the world. He came to the Holy Land because he was studying to be a Jewish leader, a Jewish teacher. He was a Pharisee in training. So of course he came to Jerusalem. And while there he came to hear this story about Jesus, you know, in a miraculous way, God converted him. And then he went all over the world, still single, but always establishing relationships, teaching us about relationships. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all those assembled and those who are also live streaming, may our thoughts be guided by your thoughts and may your word appropriate for my life, whether it's what pastor intends or not, but your word appropriate for my life, may it cut through, touch me, and change me to be what you would have me be for my betterment, for the, better, for the betterment of, of my witness and, and to your glory, we ask in Christ. Amen. Well, as I thought about this series, I, I thought about uh, a couple of phrases that you have heard, even though you might not otherwise recognize these two individuals. And I'm going to put them up here for you. Uh, now, when you put for whom the bell tolls with this image, you probably recognize that guy when you see the words with the face. And that would be Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, who wrote for whom the bell tolls in 1940. Do you believe that was so long ago already? Uh, an incredible book about the Spanish Civil War as seen through the eyes of a young American who went to volunteer there and the lessons he learned about life. But this man is connected to this man who is... You would think it's Shakespeare. He's a contemporary of Shakespeare, but it was not Shakespeare. It's John Donne, who was also an English poet. And uh, he distinguished himself in a genteel society that was careful about saying things not just uh, well, but careful about saying things 
you know, in a gentle way. He was kind of in your face with his poetry, with his prose, and as a result, made a name for himself because he spoke in raw emotion. John Dunn is his name. And uh, Meditation 17 contains both these words, no man is an island, and also these words, for whom the bell tolls. And so that joins these two men together. He obviously knew of this man's writing. And I'm going to tell you in a minute how also their story is joined with mine uh, even a number of decades after the death of Hemingway. So the Meditation 17 of John Donne was written when he was an old man for himself, uh, ill to the point of death, and he heard the church bells in the village ring. And thinking about his own situation and the ringing of the bells, which indicated the death of somebody in the village, he wrote these musings. No man is an island entirely of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the lesser for it. You know, if a piece of ground falls into the sea, the continent is just a little bit less. As well as if a promontory were, you know, a cliff overhanging a river and it falls off, the cliff is less of a cliff. As well as if it were your friend's manor, meaning his house, or even your own. You know, if a shingle falls off, if something happens in a storm, it's less and you've lost something. Any man's death diminishes me, he wrote, because I am involved in all mankind. And therefore, never send to find out for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for, tells for thee. It's interesting, you know, when they rang the bell in the village, it wasn't for the man who died or for the woman who died. It was to announced to the living that somebody had died and there was a reason why they wanted to announce that to the living now here's the connection for me uh, back when i was doing internship as part of the seminary i was assigned to mount pulaski illinois my seminary training was actually in springfield have you ever been to mount pulaski show of hands one half of one not sure maybe I've seen the sign as I went up Highway 55. You know, it's maybe once mentioned. It's not on the main thoroughfare anymore. It's just a little bit of a hill in the middle of the plains of Illinois, central Illinois. And my wife taught school there. And so uh, we lived out there. And I drove the 25 miles into Springfield to the seminary. And uh, they still practice a lot of European customs there. And one of the customs was ringing the church bell when somebody died in the middle of the week. Now, in today's society maybe that meaning is lost i wonder if they still do that sometimes i do because you know we have our windows up in our car we have music on we have the air conditioning blowing you know uh they have diesel tractors out on the field making a lot of noise the the farmer sits in a in a you know an enclosed air conditioned you know uh capsule and, and so i don't think it has the same meaning it had back in european days when the village was the social center of life and everybody lived in proximity. And when the bell tolled, everybody stopped what they were doing. Because you could hear it for miles. And even back in Mount Pulaski, still maintaining that tradition, they would ring the bell once for a man, twice for a woman, three times for a child. There would be a pause. And then they would ring out the number of years. And so people would guess. Who died? A man 20, was it 27 or was it 31? I lost count. And they would guess as to for whom the bell tolls. And uh, appropriately so, 
Uh, John Dunn says, don't ask for whom the bell tolls. The bell is tolling, it's ringing for you. It, it also reminded me of my childhood when I was raised in a very traditional European-based congregation in Indiana, still following many of the customs they had received from the continent. And uh, uh, the pastor would never pray an extemporaneous prayer. Uh, he would only pray what was in the liturgy because that's what he'd been taught. And, and so if uh, a person died, he would always pray a prayer for the dead. And as a result, you know, I, that prayer impressed me because that church is even older than this one, well over 150 years old. And, uh, and uh, we had a number of people who were aged in that church. And when they died, everybody cared. Everybody was pretty much related. It was a small town. And he would always pray a prayer that included the words from Psalm 90, So, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may live our hearts with wisdom. You know, so when you hear that bell ring, you say, that's a message for me. How am I living my life? That day is coming for me. You know, I am also mortal. Lord, teach me to live my life like that day will be a day that would not catch me by surprise. I like to say, in the beginning, God created people for relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want you to uh, recognize your individual importance. You know, uh, a snowflake, as Chris mentioned earlier, is unique. There are no two that are designed exactly alike. And that's okay. And when you become a Christian person, God doesn't say put aside your individuality. In fact, next week we're going to talk about how your individuality is God-designed. You are born in this place, in this time, with these gifts, you know, with these opportunities for a reason. And each and every one of us has a unique purpose and a unique reason. Uh, so we're not asking that you give up that individual identity, but there is something unique that happens when all those snowflakes come together. And if you've traveled, as I have, you know, in a mountainous region in the winter, you might see a sign like this that says, Danger, these guys have gotten together, and if you don't have chains on your tire, you go no further. In fact, they will pull you over, they will write you up, they will make you stop driving because the power of united snowflakes is incredible, can stop civilization. God has intended that we would live in relationship. And he brought this to Adam's attention even in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a relationship for him. In fact, I don't know if you do this. I think probably most of you do. I, I think that's just part of how we worship individually while we're still in a big room. You know, while a song is uh, being sung, I don't always have to sing that song to benefit from it. And sometimes I'll just, you know, go off on my own and I'll bow my head and I'll just be in prayer. And it's interesting to me that when I do that, uh, I run through relationships. You know, God has caused us to be born into families. You know, we are not born independent of our family. In fact, we are dependent upon them for a long time, really, even for the rest of our life as we continue this network. Even if that's a dysfunctional family, it has a big influence. Its influence is never neutral in your life, and hopefully it's for your good. That's by God's design. You know, he has created us for unity. And I, I love this uh, passage also from Ecclesiastes that speaks about the importance of uh, realizing this early on. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, had wealth. He had power. He had anything that he wanted at his disposal. But he came to realize the most important thing were the relationships. And in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, you will find this 
musing, not John Donne, but Solomon's musing about relationships. There was a man all alone. He had neither a son nor a brother, and there was no end to his toil. He was a workaholic, and he was having success at it. He was gathering more land, more money, more buildings, and yet his eyes were never content with his wealth. Like, you know, I'm achieving more, but enjoying it less. For who am I toiling? You know, to what end am I accumulating these things? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? And where do I find enjoyment? This is all meaningless. The more I pursue it, the more I realize it's miserable business, even though he was successful. For two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. It is not good for me to live alone, not just with things, not just with money. If either of them falls down, and he's not just speaking physically, speaking emotionally, speaking spiritually, uh, in struggle. If one of them has a struggle, the other can help them up, just even by listening sometimes. But pity the one who falls down who has no one to lift them up, no one who cares about them. Also, if two lie down together, they will stay warm. Just, you know, that's why I love a two-man tent when I I camp uh, in the mountains in the snow. You know, uh, we don't sleep in the same sleeping bag, obviously, but the body warmth of two men will help you stay warm. But how can one keep warm alone? You know, just continuing the metaphor. Though one man may be overpowered, you know, when others come against you, you know, with two you find strength to stand up to your enemies, you know, or to uh, uh, not let them defeat you uh, and make you feel bad. You know, somebody else, maybe it's not even a physical contest, maybe it's an emotional one, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Solomon came to understand that we are meant for relationship. Now as a test of this, let's look at this man who gives us advice in Acts chapter 17 as we uh, look at a case study of the principle of unity at work. Uh, Reading then from Acts chapter 17 beginning at verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, how good and All right, this is Psalm 133, and let's just go forward, please. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with, with those who happened to be there. As I mentioned, Paul was born in Tarsus. He was converted in the Holy Land, and then he was sent around the country. He did not go by himself. He always went with other people, other Christians. In this case, uh, Paul was with Timothy and Silas, and they were traveling uh, throughout uh, Asia Minor, throughout Turkey, uh, through Galatia, and uh, they were teaching people as they went. And in one place, it was necessary for Timothy and Silas to remain, but Paul went on to, uh, to Athens, and he was waiting for them. While he was waiting for them, Uh, He was troubled uh, by the religiosity of the people who wanted to find truth, but had found it in false religion. And while he was troubled with this, he began to go into the synagogues to talk to other Jewish believers and also talk to other God-fearing Gentiles to find out, you know, how can we break through? You know, how can we be a strength and help this community better know God? People of faith grow better together. In fact, there's a scripture that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man strengthens another. As Christian people, we are intended to come together. I don't know if you've uh, ever traveled to California, but in California, you will find the, the largest 
living organism in entire North America. Do you know what it is? It's the mighty redwood trees. Versus the biggest tree that you'll find in Missouri, the mighty oak tree. How large do these trees get? They get as high as 400 feet tall. This tree, a big one, 60 feet tall. This is 20 stories. These can live as long as 2,000 years. These live hundreds of years, you know, if they're old. You know, what an incredible difference between these two. You know, this one can break and is often uprooted. You know, when a storm comes through, if the ground is wet, I've seen even a healthy tree, you know, because of the, the strength and even the size of the tree, the roots can't support it and it falls over. These trees rarely fall over. They live 2,000 years. And uh, the reason is that they don't grow in isolation. Redwood trees always grow in a grove. You know, they are stronger together. Uh, and you talk about size of, an, of a living thing, 1,700 tons. You know, the size of many, many, you know, huge blue wells. You know, in fact, as many as 15 adult blue wells did not weigh as much as a single oak tree. As iron sharpens iron, so we are intended to grow together. And Paul understood the need for Christians to come together to debate these things and to know how we should work best together. This ceiling is not supported by steel beams. Steel beams are heavy, but we need strength. And so we have laminated beams. They are lighter and actually stronger than steel. If you take one board and you're able to break it with 10 pounds of pressure, put 10 boards together, you would think 100 pounds of pressure will break it? Not so. You know, many, many times 100 would be required to break a beam of 10 joined boards. That's the synergy, the way God had designed things to be done. That's why our church encourages you to come together and not live in isolation. You know, even those who are live streaming with us now, that's awesome. We're glad that that's available to you in special circumstance. But I hope that you will also abide by the word of God from Hebrews chapter 10 that says, Do not give up meeting together, as is the habit of some. But come together for the encouragement of one another, and all the more as you see that day approaching. You know, we need each other. We need to come together. That's why as a church we've established men's group called Iron Men Studies. If you're not in one, I would encourage you to be in one. Not only for what you can receive, but for what you can bring to the table. There's just a power in the give and take that is different than just listening to a pastor teach on Sunday. You also learn through your personal study and through uh, leading a study and through uh, the question and answers that occur in those settings. Women's groups as well, or couples groups also. That's the reason that our pastoral care office has discontinued the idea of just being a counseling office. Now people do need individually counseling and care and we can refer to great Christian counselors about that. But we want to be efficient in the use of funds and so we've established a pastoral office that leads care groups so that people can care for other people. Even in terms of visitation of our people. You know, the pastors could go around and spend all week and we'd never get done. We'd never get caught up visiting all the shut-ins, all the hospitals, all the nursing homes where people need our support. 
And so we've trained a, a whole uh, a group of people called La Vista Visitors who go out and make those visitations. If a pastor is needed, certainly a pastor can be there and pastors do get involved. But we've organized people to care for each other, even in terms of the caregivers. Care for caregivers is a new uh, thing that we're involved with, too, because there are people like you who are caring for aging parents or are caring for a special needs person in your own family. You know, you just need relief from that. You need to be encouraged in that. And so we've organized a group of people who understand that issue, who are trained and go out and help in that way. Or we conduct care ministries, groups of people coming together to care for each other. We are just the catalyst, not the expert, as these people who've been through loss can come together and help each other in grief share. As people who've been through divorce can come together and help each other through difficult times of divorce, divorce care. Or, or through Financial Peace University so that we can get our financial house in order. Because in West County, uh, the number one leading cause of stress is financial you know, or even to help those who are strong become stronger and increase your influence by listening to business leaders like we'll be at the summit to help you use Christian principles to advance the cause of Christ in that way. It's important that we realize that uh, this is a part of who we are. And not just in terms of a congregation doing these things, but also you. That you would have intentional relationship with other Christians that you would not just call the church office and say this person needs help, that you would respond, you know, to those who need help, that you would be the first one who shows up, that you would provide the support, the encouragement, the listening ear, the prayerful concern that is needed by everybody because God has designed that Christians work best when Christians work together. And not only when we work with fellow Christians, but if we read on, uh, Paul also had a concern and an intention to work with those who are outside of the Christian faith. You know, we have a mission. You know, we go uh, faster alone, but we go further together. We accomplish more together. Let's continue to read. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, you know, Greece was uh, all about thinking about the principles of life, began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babble, babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent time doing nothing more but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting place of the Areopagus and said, You are all sinners and you're all going to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. He didn't say that. Christians sometimes say that, but, or they at least communicate that you know, by uh, their disrespect for people who don't believe what they believe. But that wasn't Paul's approach. Paul said to the people of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. Let me just comment. You know, I love that you guys are thinking about these things. I love that you are spiritual people. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar there that said, uh, to an unknown God. You know, even though you have this God for that and this God for that and this myth and this belief about this, there's still something that you don't know. There's still something that's curious to you. And so he picked up on that. He picked up on their curiosity, even that you want to hear more from me. Why? If you have all the answers, why do you want to hear from me? So you are ignorant of the very thing. You are uninformed about the very thing that you worship. You say, I don't understand this. I don't know what must be true. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. 
It's fascinating. People were watching Paul. And I guarantee you, people are watching you too. You know, as we grow here as Christians together, uh, that's wonderful. But our mission is not to just gather here. We are to be the salt and light of the world. There's a lot of light in this room. You know, lights are meant to be hung in dark places. And so God puts you in all kinds of relationships where the light can be seen. And uh, you are being observed, you know, out there. And you are intended by God to have this mission to go further to bring the message uh, beyond these walls. Because not everybody's going to walk in here. In fact, they typically only walk in here after you've walked into their life and made a difference. I knew a guy who worked for AT&T who just kept a Bible on his desk. And uh, he read from it, I'm sure, on his breaks or uh, at lunch. He probably had a devotional book with it. Uh, but he kept it visible. He didn't hide it in his drawer. He didn't put it on his shelf. He kept it on his desk. And he said it was amazing to me how many people would come into his office and say, uh, are you a Christian? Can I talk to you about something? And they would sit down. You know, it was just a way for him to say, you know, I stand for something different. You know, even when you're out in public, you know, it's important that you understand that you have a witness that you can make. Uh, you can bow your heads in prayer. You know, I've even done that privately. And, and uh, you know, I'll wait for a breakfast or something. And a waitress will sometimes say, you're a Christian. Would you pray for this for me? You know, there's just a simple way in which you can do that. Now, there's also an offensive way to do that. I remember when I was in college, um, I would uh, sometimes spend short vacation times because I couldn't go all the way home to Indiana. I would spend them with friends. And, and one of my friends was uh, the son of a pastor. And, and he was kind of a, a fire and brimstone, out there, in your face kind of guy. And he would pick us up and he would bring us uh, home for the weekend. And I remember this one time we were sitting in the Cottonwood Inn and occasionally I've driven by that place and it's still, I'm so scarred by it, I still remember. Uh, that he sat in the middle of this, you know, dusty little restaurant in the middle of, you know, Texas, West Texas, and all the, uh, all the oil uh, field people were in there, and the cowboys were in there, and the trucks were out there with their rifles, and they had their hats and their boots, and, and uh, we sat in the middle of the room, not by accident, but by intention, and he, he said, uh, men, join hands. You know, we were all boys, but men, join hands. And he prayed out loud, dear Jesus, dear, and he did this, you know, as a witness, he thought, and I thought as an offense, it offended me and I was with him. And, uh, and I, I just think there's a, way, there's a way to do this, and there's a way to do this wrongly, you know, to uh, let your light be seen, but not in such a way that you're condemning. Notice Paul was not condemning. He said, I perceive that you're religious, you know, tell me more about your religious beliefs. And in such, they also said, and tell us about your religious beliefs. And, and uh, you don't go uh, in order to just receive a uh, blessing yourself. Maybe you're the guy that uh, will be the blessing for others. You know, this idea that you also have a purpose. Even last Sunday, for instance, uh, I preached at the tradition service on Saturday night. And Dion preached the warehouse service, and then he preached all Sunday morning. And uh, so I really didn't need, you know, to, to be here on Sunday. And uh, Carol objected and, and said, uh, no, I, I think you still, I mean, you're going to do what? And I said, well, I might go play golf. I haven't played golf in a while. And she says, you're a pastor and you're going to play golf on Sunday morning? And I say, hey, we're not a legalistic church. I did worship. In fact, I led worship on Saturday night. It's okay. She says, what kind of witness do you give? I said, I don't know. I haven't met those people yet, so let's go see. And uh, she said, but Dion needs you there. And I said, Dion's a big boy. You know, he doesn't need me there. You know, he needs your encouragement. 
And, and uh, I said, I can encourage Dion on Monday. And she says, but just, just think of the people that you might run into that you might be helpful to. And so she finally wore me out, and, and uh, I showed up here, and I sat in the pew and listened to Dion preach. And, and what she said was true. You know, it was good that I was here to encourage him. And it was also interesting that other people came up and uh, asked me to pray with tears in their eyes about things that they'd been going through and difficulties uh, that they had been experiencing. And so, you know, I was also blessed to be a blessing. God intends that we would also extend ourselves and realize that we have a purpose beyond ourselves. And that purpose is to show Christ. You've, you've probably uh, seen these animals uh, before. And, and I love that video that we showed at the beginning of the service about a murmuring of starlings and how powerful that was. I thought as I watched that, Nat Geo has sent crews and spent millions of dollars to try to capture that, never did. These girls were in the Canadian waters canoeing and, and had a cell phone and caught it. You know, what an incredible thing. Uh, but you've, you've seen this where, you know, uh, Canadian geese, you know, fly in a V uh, versus, you know, one bird that flies by itself. And the reason they do this is not without purpose or out without God's design. They can go 71% further together than they can go alone. The wings of the bird in front of them provide lift that enable them to glide. They draft off of each other as they fly, enabling them to go further. Of course, these guys up front eventually, you know, tire because they're breaking, uh, you know, the uh, resistance in advance of the crews behind them. Uh, and so they will fall out of formation and the others will fall into formation. And in this way, they go further. And all the time, they're talking to each other. That's why you look up and hear them, because you hear them honking. And they're giving encouragement to each other. And if one falls out of formation because it's wounded or because it's hurt or not feeling well, two others will fall out of formation with it as well to care for it until it gets better or until it dies. That's the nature that God designed also for us. You know, we have a purpose, and our purpose is to best accomplish when we do this together. For this reason, God has asked us to engage our community. But we don't go out to our community uh, just to give them counsel and advice. We also ask them to come and help us. If you were here at the, uh, at the Holy Week Immersion worship experience, you saw a group of musicians who were down here. I'd never met them before. They looked like they were from Duck Dynasty. You know, they, they were older guys and they had the beards and they were playing some funky earthen music. Uh, kind of like first century, which was the design because we were trying to create a first century concept. And then over here, we had a graphic designer who had iPads and he was drawing different images of Christ. Do you remember that? You know, throughout Holy Week. And it was interesting, neither these musicians nor that guy was a part of the Christian church. You know, we didn't necessarily have that expertise within the congregation. It was okay with us. We just uh, put an advertisement out there. We made some phone calls and we found these people. And what was interesting to me is these Duck Dynasty musicians uh, over here had said, you know, this is different for us. We've played in many bars throughout the city. We've never played in a church before. And so in between church and before church and after church, they had lots of questions. And they were so thankful that they had the opportunity to do this in a Christian setting. And they listened intently to the messages that unfolded. And the same with the guy who was doing the drawing for us. You know, and what's interesting is when we did silhouettes and we... In, 
we engaged a dance company to come and be a part of us. Many of those people who danced were told what to do and how to dance, and we worked with their dance instructor. We didn't have that expertise ourselves, but they did. And so they brought the message of the birth of Jesus, even the historic messianic prophecies to us in an interesting way. The whole community came out, but also they were blessed, and they brought their families along with them. How wonderful it is when God's people realize that we don't just go and condemn the community. We don't just stand here and conduct a, a pep rally against the opposing high school team. You know, we don't just come and preach about what the Supreme Court is doing wrong, what we wish the president would do right, how Congress is messed up. You know, we talk about lives. We talk about our lives. We talk about the lives of people we know. And we invite them in here so that they can grow and be a part of knowing more about Jesus Christ. That's how Paul did it. That's what we intend to do. And notice that we don't do it in order to just please God, to be obedient to God, as though God needs our obedience. Let's continue and finish the reading from Acts chapter 17. This principle is for our benefit, not for God's. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, this is Paul speaking to the Athenian Stoic philosophers and Epicureans. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the unknown God that you don't know. Let me explain to him. He does not live in temples made by human hands. You know, you can't build you know, the right place for him. He is not served by human hands. He doesn't need you to do anything for him as if he needed anything. That's true of us. That's true of everyone in the world. Rather, he himself gives everyone. He's doing for this for us, life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. We even say that sometimes here. We just say, hey, this is God's house. You are God's children, whether you know it or not. Welcome home. You know, he's been waiting for you. And he marked out there appointed times in history. You are born for this time and for this place to do a certain thing. And the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being, as some of your own prophets, not John Dunn, but prophets who reflect and philosophers who reflect on life, as some of your own people have said, we are his offspring. We know there is a God. We may be agnostic. We may think that we don't know who this God is. We can say, well, let us help you with that because, you know, God has been gracious enough to reveal himself to us. This is for our benefit, not for his. And this is a big difference in this church. I, I hope that you realize this. That when we have expectations for you, just like today, we're going to ask you to go down and, and uh, contribute $35 to, to put a, a backpack together of school supplies. Not for your kids, but for kids in the inner city. And we're going to work with a Christian ministry down there that will get it to the kids who need it in the right way. Uh, so that we're not just enabling bad behavior, but they'll give it to them in a Christian uh, format because people are watching Christians and when Christians don't just say hey you need to get to church but Christians say hey how can we help you and we come in to help them uh, then we're able to do that and and so we're engaging in an intentional way but to our benefit you know when we're able to do this uh, and, and you by the way they take plastic you didn't bring $35 in cash or you don't have a checkbook you know you can go down there and do this and what an incredible thing because we do this not to please God I'm not asking you to do that to please God there's nothing you have to do to please him. It's not like you could earn, you know, more respect for him or, or position yourself to receive greater blessing from him by good behavior. It has nothing to do with that. You know, you have been made perfectly pleasing through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Amen? Give God the glory. 
And if you've been forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus, what else do you need to do? Nothing else. You know, we don't live our life to attain his favor. We live our life because we have his favor. So different. You know, if my sons grew up uh, in fear of me and they did what I wanted them to do because they didn't want to get whacked or they wanted to get a blessing, uh, that would be manipulation on my part and on theirs. But if they love me and, and I've showed that I've loved them and they do it because we have this love relationship, how much greater is their obedience when it's motivated by love rather than to try to get something or to try to overcome something they've done wrong? You know, their motivation is love. God doesn't need anything from us. In fact, he promised from the beginning of man's need that he would send a Savior. He sent the Savior, and I'm so grateful that I want to show him my gratitude by helping others. And when I help them, I benefit as well. Uh, Dion is fond of saying, and I, I love to quote him on this, uh, the Christian life well lived is not without its benefit. You know, when I do these things, I think that I'm sacrificing. I think that I'm, you know, giving something up. In fact, you are the one who benefits the most. Even when you forgive others, you are the one who is most forgived. You know, you are the one who is most spiritually blessed by that. And when you help others physically, you are the one who walks away more satisfied than even the person you help because you realize that you have been blessed uh, to have those resources to be of help and assistance to others. This is how God has designed the world. I love the way it's said, and I've often quoted I'm going to quote it as I conclude this sermon, uh, the, uh, the prayer of St. Francis, who was a 13th century monk. In fact, it became, his prayer became the pillar of Mother Teresa's work in Calcutta among the, among the world's uh, most downcast, untouchable, uh, forgotten people, the people of the streets of India. And she built an empire on this and is honored across the world because of this. In fact, she received the Nobel Peace Prize because of her work. And when she received the Nobel Peace Prize, she would not even come to, to uh, uh, Oslo to receive the award unless they included this prayer in her award. And it's a prayer that speaks about the fact that we have been saved and redeemed to do something. And in doing that, you know, we are the ones who benefit. God hasn't demanded it for his sake. He's demanded it for our benefit and for the benefit of the world. Here's how the prayer goes. Lord, make me an instrument of dispensing your peace. You know, don't bring peace to me. Like, make me an instrument of your peace to others. Where there is hatred, let me show love. Where there is injury, let me show pardon. Where there is doubt, let me be the one who extends faith. Where there is despair, let me be the one who brings hope. When you do that, even if you're having despair, guess what? You receive the hope that you're giving away. Where there is darkness, let me be the one who brings light. Where there is sadness, let me be the one who brings joy. Oh, divine master, what a great prayer. Grant that I not so much seek to be consoled as to be the guy on the giving end who consoles others. To be understood as to be the one who understands. To be loved as to be the one who loves. For this is true, and it's, it's, it, it's a paradox, but it's true. It is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. It's the secret of the faith, that we are not meant, you know, for selfishness. We're not meant to live in isolation. We're not meant just to heap up knowledge about Bible stories and be able to answer a trivia question about Scripture or Jesus. We are meant to put this faith into action. And I praise God that that's what we try to do here. Let me pray for you.